This is the Game Changers Experience. Deep dive conversations with leading business disruptors, Olympic athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and influencers from around the world. This show will teach you insights about the winning principles in mindset, productivity, marketing, branding, entrepreneurship, business strategy, and more. Hosted by Productivity Authority, business strategist, former elite athlete, author, and public speaker, Adam Strong. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Game Changers Experience. I am so excited and so super pumped that you are listening to this amazing show. Um, I was going to say, my name is Adam, Adam Strong. I'm the founder of the, the Game Changers Experience. And today we have a special guest on the show. Uh, his name is called Neil Fashi. And Neil is actually a double world and Olympic champion, by the way, in cycling. He's a Paralympic champion. Um, he is, um, was going to say he was featured in uh, the Beijing 2008, uh, Olympic games and also in London 2012 as well. And we'll talk about that by the way, cause that's an interesting journey, um, has won 26 major medals of which, um, I, I believe that you said one of them was gold in the London Olympic games. And then you had 10 world championships and four Commonwealth. I think, I think that's correct. Is that right? Yeah, and that, that could be a, an old one. It's now 14 world titles. I don't want to boast, but um, yeah, go get those numbers right. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. And also just, to, um, also, just to let you know as well that Neil is also a best-selling author and has got his amazing book called Earn Your Stripes, which we'll talk about actually towards the end, if that's okay with you, Neil. Um, yeah, so I just want to say thank you so much for being on the, on the show. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me along. Can't wait. Awesome. So um, I just want to kind of jump in a little bit because I know that there is um, a real, I mean, we share a lot of great attributes, don't we? And we had a lot of fantastic conversations off the air and, 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 and things like that. But I wanted to ask you because you are Scottish, okay? And you got into, um, what was I going to say? You got into, I suppose, athletics, you know, back in 2006, I think it was. Yeah, I mean, that's when I, I kind of made my international debut. And, and athletics was something, for me, it was a hobby from the age of 10. So I'd been involved for a long, long time. Mm. Um, I'm actually, I have a, a visual impairment. So I'm a person with a disability. But when I was younger, I kind of, I hid that disability. It wasn't something, I think I came from just after that generation where we weren't really so open about things that weren't the same as everyone else. So uh, I never competed as a disabled athlete. and yeah, I just competed able-bodied. It was my, my hobby for a long time. And it wasn't until I got into my early 20s that as my eyesight deteriorated because it's a, a degenerative condition. So mm. at some point in my life, I will go totally blind and have to kind of constantly adapt as my eyesight gets worse. And when I got to my early 20s, it was bad enough that people, a few people started to become aware and someone suggested para-sport. And I never thought my eyesight was bad enough, to be honest, just because it's something I'd grown up with, I'd lived with. Um, but I got my eyes tested for the, the Paralympics and, and was told that, yeah, of course I was, I was classified. I could have been competing for years. And, um, suddenly my hobby was something that I started to think, well, I could pursue this as a, a potential career, which, which came quite nicely just towards the end of my degree, actually. So I didn't have to go and find a, a job. I could start, go down the route of full-time sport and I found athletics and, um, you know, I was a, a one and 200 meter runner and it ultimately led to 
just making it to the, the Beijing Games in 2008 um, to represent Team GB, which was just this uh, remarkable shift from a hobby to something that was, you know, just something I, I never even really dreamt of. It was huge. Um, and it was at that point I really fell in love with the Paralympic Games. So when you go to a Games, you, uh, you stay in the, the athlete's village for sort of before and during the games. And uh, I walked in there and was just struck by the sort of magnitude of it all. So you had athletes from almost every nation on earth, um, all with various disabilities. It's just incredibly diverse place. I mean, there's nowhere on earth like it for diversity. Mm. And I just absolutely fell in love with this. It was just huge. And the venues in Beijing, I mean, there's the Bird's Nest Stadium I was competing in, which is a 90,000 seater stadium and just awe-inspiring. You know, I was used to, competing like I said able-bodied in sort of local leagues up in Aberdeen in athletics and suddenly I was competing in a 90,000 seater <laughs> stadium so it was just incredible and I just completely fell in love with it and it was you know I, I thought oh, I found my calling and um, I knew the the London games were four years away I mean they'd been announced a few years before and I thought wow I mean what a phenomenal thing that would be to to represent your country at home Paralympic games and so that became my target. And during Beijing itself, I, I finished ninth in both my events, top eight making the final. So, you know, I did okay, not great. I'd love to make the final. Mm. But I knew if I was going to make it to London, I was going to have to make a few changes to, to keep improving. I mean, sports moving forward at an incredible rate. But, you know, I was motivated, I was inspired. I got home and then a couple of weeks after, after I got back from Beijing, I kind of, you know, I was just getting back into the swing of it. And I got a phone call from my manager at UK Athletics, which said, we don't think you've got the potential to make it to London. Your contract is terminated with immediate effect. Wow. And at that point, you know, the dream was done. Um, that was it over. And I had to start looking for a real job. And, and what, what, um, what was going through your mind when that happened? At the moment it happened, I think I was, I was angry and I was blaming other people. Um, I never thought it was my fault. I felt like I had the potential. Other people hadn't found a way for me to get the most out of myself. And, you know, they should have been putting more time into me. They should have had more understanding. They should have just have given me that opportunity. Um, and I think I had to go through that kind of that phase of blaming everyone else, being angry before I could start to, well, the next step, to be honest, was that almost a state of depression and numbness where, you know, I felt like my dream was done and I was applying for jobs couldn't get anything despite the fact that I had a degree and I was signing on at the job center and you know it was it was a pretty tough time where mm. I was just immersing myself in in video games because that was a, a different world where I didn't have to really look at you know it was just this really nice way to switch off from everything else mm. and um, at that point yeah it was it was pretty bleak and it, it took a while but after a couple of months of, of feeling sorry for myself there was a, a spark that that reminder of London 2012 being just four years away. And I thought, I just can't sit back and watch that on TV and not think, you know, I haven't tried at least. Um, so yeah, I got up one morning and I can't pinpoint why, but that morning something just lit in me. And I, I went and researched every sport for visually impaired people at the Paralympics and decided I was going to try every single one of them until I found one I might be good enough at that I'd be considered possible just to make it to the starting line. Sure. And um, top of the list was cycling because I've always been a, a big fan 
of the sport and at the Beijing Olympics, the cycling team at the Beijing Olympics and the Paralympics, they did incredibly well. So it was, they were in the media, they were immensely successful. It was this huge turn in form in cycling in the country. So I decided that's the one I'm going to try first. And I, I called up Manchester Velodrome, which is, you know, uh, based in Aberdeen. It was a, a seven hour train journey away, but it was the closest indoor velodrome at the time. And just asked, well, how, how do you get involved? Can I can anyone come and have a go? And they said, sure. You sign up for a taster session where anyone from the public can give it a try. And I headed down to Manchester and I realized I hadn't told them I can't see very well. Um, <laughs> I thought I could, I could let them know. And I thought, you know what? They might not let me have a shot. So I'll just keep quiet. And I, I wobbled my way around the track and I kept away from everyone else. You know, I didn't want to cause any problems, but I survived and I did the taster session and then that was it. I was going to go home, you know, it was done. I'd give, given it a shot, but there was a great brand cycling session on just after that taster session. And I still had, um, my bag had Beijing 2008 on the back because I was still living from my previous glories of the, the Paralympics and someone saw it who was warming up for the session. And he said to me, oh, you know, I, I was Beijing. I, I went to the, the Sydney Olympics. Uh, I won a silver medal. And I used to be part of the, the Olympic squad, but I've just moved to the Paralympic squad. And I'm now what's known as a tandem pilot. So I ride on the front of a tandem and I need someone who's visually impaired to ride on the back. Do you know anyone who might be interested? And I said, well, yeah, I think I might, might be quite keen. And then, you know, things started to, to progress from there. And that was my introduction to cycling. Isn't that interesting? You kind of were at the right time or the right place. Exactly. And it was really out of character for me to do that. Like, um, I, was, I was someone who was very shy. Mm. And even picking up the phone to make that phone call was so out of character. So I'm not sure what kind of almost possessed me that day to do it. But then to make the trip to Manchester and just completely going out of my normality, kind of disrupting the whole normal thought process. But yeah, right place, right time. And, you know, I guess it's a case of you put yourself in those opportunities and sometimes these things happen. And, you know, I've kind of looked back on that moment and just think, well, what if I hadn't been there? You know, it's such a pivotal moment in my life, but um, led to so many great experiences. Interesting. Because I know that, you know, being a runner myself and, you know, and cycling, I mean, they're two very different disciplines, aren't they? And, you know, the training regimes are very different and, and, you know, the coaching is very different. Everything is very different from, uh, but, you know, you talk a, a lot about, we, we talked a, a lot about reinventing yourself and the importance of reinventing yourself. I mean, when you said, when you were doing your research and, you thought, oh, you know, I, I kind of don't want to let go of that dream. Why cycling? I mean, you said that you were a keen cyclist. Was that it? And 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 yeah. So there was there was one moment which stuck in my head um, at the Beijing Games. There was one of the one of the people working for Paralympics GB who was also uh, worked for Sports Scotland, so I knew her quite well. And after my event, I went along to, to the Paralympics GB area to meet my family, sort of a a safe place where you can meet up with relatives at, at games and on the tv there was the tandem cycling happened to be on and this lady uh liz walked past and she said oh neil you'd be great on the back of a tandem and it was just this kind of throwaway comment and i don't think i've spoke to her afterwards and she doesn't remember saying it but you know it's just one of those things that someone says it just sticks in your head and you think you know i wonder i don't know if there's any real justification for why she said it but i just thought yeah maybe maybe it would be right for me and um 
Like I say, I've been a, a long, a lifelong fan of cycling as well. And mm-hmm. it, it's a sport I always loved. And when I had better eyesight when I was younger, I was always out riding my bike and it kind of became quite obvious now that I look back that it was almost meant to be. <laughs> but yeah, just that little comment that, that Liz made was, was so pivotal, I think. And me thinking, mm-hmm. well, you know, I'm looking for any sport and I was kind of clawing to any sort of thing at the time and just that mm-hmm. comment stuck in my head. So nice. Yeah. You know, it was just, as you say, a case of having to reinvent myself and, and that was crucial as well as I moved sport. I was going to say, is, was there a, like a process that you, um, cause when we talk about reinventing ourselves, what did, did you go through an actual process? Like, did you, was it, was there a game plan in your head or did you just kind of go with the flow? How did that work? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was a distinct plan as such other than I had this this London 2012 spark there. Mm. Um, and I knew, having been to the Games, I knew what it would take. Um, and, you know, I, I'd experienced seeing athletes who I didn't realise how big the Paralympics were and quite mm. how phenomenal these athletes were. And mm. I hadn't really appreciated what standard of kind of commitment and dedication I needed. And I guess that opened my eyes to it a bit. And um, so I, I knew I wanted to be in London. I knew it was going to take something special and certainly moving sports was a challenge, but I decided it was just going to be a, a full commitment and I would kind of gamble um, and take take the risk. So I decided um, I got accepted to the, the development squad, which was just being created for paracycling at the time. We had a very successful uh main team but there was nothing underneath that level really in in gb for paracycling so they started the development program Mm -hmm. and i got accepted onto that but my funding for the year was one thousand pounds um i didn't have much in the way of savings but i decided i needed to move to manchester as that's where the the gb team's based Mm -hmm. and i just thought i've got one opportunity here i need to to move to where all the experts are where everyone else is training and, and make that commitment and i decided to move to manchester with deciding essentially I had six months really that I could afford to stay there and I had to make an impression to get on the squad in that time or I was going back to live with mum and dad essentially so it was kind of an all or nothing wow because the thought of moving back home was so so strong that I didn't want to do that that I think that was such a huge driving force to just commit and give it all I had and it worked to be fair fair enough Uh, it's interesting because I know that um, athletes go through m- huge amounts of struggles, whether it be funding, uh, whether it be mindset stuff. But what, what was what would you, what would you say was your biggest struggle in being an athlete? And I, I know that you are still an athlete, and you are looking at Tokyo next year because it obviously got cancelled this year. But you know, potentially next year. But w- what are your biggest struggles in that, as an athlete, and how do you overcome them? Yeah, I mean, I think. I think we often have this uh, image, I certainly did when I was younger, that elite athletes are almost like Greek gods who are infallible. They're, you know, tough skinned. They're just these immense beings that are level above us. And it's not until you get involved in elite sport that you realize that's so far removed from the truth that most athletes are really quite fragile mentally, to be honest, where the ups and downs really affect them. There's a lot of lack of self belief and, um, what most of them have is just some sort of system in place, whether they know it or not, that allows them to get the most out of themselves every day, that allows them to make it to a starting line where, you know, for, for many, there's, you know, thousands in the crowd, there's cameras pointed at you and often 
certainly when the games come around, there's a nation expecting for many that you're going to achieve. And it's this huge amount of pressure. Mm. It's very hard to, you know, almost imagine how these athletes you see in training who are getting upset because they didn't manage to do well and lift in the gym or something. And then suddenly they're on this start line and winning gold medals for the country. It's, it's quite almost hard to compute where, how they go from one place to the other. But um, for me, I've always had that lack of self-belief. I'm, I'm still quite a shy person and I struggle with that. So it's been a lot of things about coaching myself and working with experts as well to, to learn how to overcome those doubts. Um, having sort of tools in place that ensure that every day I'm able to get up and still perform. And I think it's just been something I've learned to do myself. Uh, I'm quite keen to use self talk which is something widely used in sport where mm. i mean we all have this this inner monologue going on in your head where uh, you have somewhere between believe it or not 60 to 80,000 individual thoughts a day um i know some people who have far less by the way but most of us <laughs> have around 60 to 80,000 and you know if you don't have control over where those thoughts are going they can take you all over the place you're up you're down you know you get positive thoughts negative thoughts and you can't really control most of them um, but there are times when I find I can actually have control about what I'm thinking. Um, I can use kind of motivational self-talk, whether it be positive where I'm bigging myself up or negative where you're almost berating yourself that, you know, you should be better. And you kind of use these at the right time. And it's amazing what, what level of performance you can get out of yourself. And something I really like to use is um, like a mantra or a saying that you say over and over again to yourself. And it's something that... I almost unwittingly have used for years where if I'm in a hard training session, there would always be this go-to phrase that I'd be saying to myself to kind of keep me going. Um, and at that point in time, when I got involved with British cycling, it was London 2012. And I just kept reminding myself about that was the, the big target. So, you know, if I'm having a tough day in training, I have to do a tough effort that makes me feel physically sick. You know, you're pushing yourself to that sort of level. Mm. And your body naturally is a part of your brain telling you to protect yourself, like, oh, you know, just go a little bit easier. No one's going to notice. It doesn't really matter. And those are the points in time where you have to call upon something to get that extra few percent. And that's when I'd be saying, no, nah, come on, London 2012. That's why you're doing this, mm. London 2012. And it's amazing the shift then. Your commitment just goes through the roof because you've got that something there that you're you're aiming for. Mm. And, you know, it, it did the trick. And uh, the training was hard and you alluded to that before about it being very different and starting in a new sport was tough. And most of my day I'd spend a train and then I'd sit down and exhausted and had barely have energy to, to cook a meal. And then I'd eat and I'd sit down again and barely, barely move and go to bed and get up and train again. And it was just, um, you know, a, a tough time, but that maximum commitment and that having a phrase in my head was so important and ultimately led to me you know, succeeding and coping in those really high pressure situations as well, which is, mm. you know, what defines an athlete at the end of the day. Fantastic. Um, now I know that a lot of our listeners are listening are business owners and entrepreneurs, and they're going through tough challenges right now, you know, especially in the current economic climate and stuff like that. But do you have any um, tips or advice for those people that are going through those challenges in their businesses right now? And maybe share... I mean, you shared some great lessons actually about how you reinvented yourself in, you know, from, from a sports perspective, but, uh, do you have any tips or analogies for, uh, for our listeners? Yeah. And you know, there are, there are huge crossovers between sport and business. I mean, these, 
two incredibly competitive worlds that are, are fast paced, ever changing. And, you know, current climate is no exception to that whatsoever where yeah. unexpected things happen. Whereas in a sport, it could be, could be injuries. It could be, could be anything really. And it's how you kind of adapt in those situations to, um, to get the most out of yourself. And, you know, we spoke about, yeah, reinventing yourself, however that may be. Sometimes you have to kind of change the athlete or the sports person you are as you get older, as you go through injuries. And it's the same with businesses that mm. you get these knocks and you might still have the end target, but you might have to approach it a different way. Mm. Uh, and that's something I've been really lucky with actually with my, my visual impairment as well as that ability to problem solve and approach things from a different perspective, which mm. I'm, you know, I'm quite grateful to have had that opportunity. And it was through looking back at my sporting career that I realized that there are all these different skills I've learned now, which, you know, picked up how to be the best in the world at what I do and, and stay there for a number of years. I've, you know, I've been, I've held the, the world, uh, the one kilometer world record for a decade now, although it's got quicker and quicker over the years, I've, I've been the holder. So, um, and I realized that a lot of these skills I've learned can be applied to anything, including business, uh, how you stay ahead of the competition in these fast paced world is, is, you know, it's so relevant to business as well. So, I mean, you mentioned before the book I've written, that's kind of aimed more at the business world than sport, to be honest. And it's just using analogies from the sporting world to show how you can apply that to, to business with regard to, um, how we do it. I've got, I've got like a, a five stripe process as five steps that five key areas. I think you need to excel if you want to be world-class at what you do. And that's looking at drive, which is what, kind of what we spoke about to start with, about kind of how you find your why, that thing you kind of hold on to that inspires you, that means you'll push yourself day in, day out. Without that, it's so hard to get the most out of yourself or your business. Uh, then the performance about how you go through that day-to-day, um, you know, the, the goal setting, the strategizing, targeting, just the setup about how you, you go from where you are now to, to achieving that end goal. Uh, the team is kind of those people around you. So in sport, we're often seen as these individuals standing on top of the podium when in reality, there's this huge amount of support we've got behind the scenes at British cycling. You know, we've got our coaches, physiologists, psychologists, nutritionists, it goes on and on, you know, a huge list of experts who help us out. And, uh, you know, I look back and without them, I'd be nothing to be honest. And then mindset, which we, we've already spoke about, which is so important if you're going to perform and then how you perform under the highest pressure. So I think the, the important one is looking at the very beginning at drive. And that's kind of what we alluded to when I, I found that, that London 2012 target about how it is you find that thing that really motivates you because I find motivation, it comes and goes, you know, some days it's up, some days it's down, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but if you want to be at, at the top, you're going to have to perform every single day. I mean, there's no getting away from that. So you need to have something that motivates you to, to do it, even on those days when you don't fancy it. And there's loads of days I get up and I think, oh, I just can't be bothered with training today. Mm. But I have to do it. And, um, you know, I have to do it at the highest level as well. So I kind of use a process now. When I look back that I used was my drive process, which the first step is to kind of disrupt your, your normal pattern of thinking and kind of step away from your normal day-to-day and that's sort of what I did back in 2008 when I went and researched all these different sports I kind of opened up a new opportunity by going to the velodrome I kind of disrupted my normal ebb and flow of the day and looked at it from a different perspective mm-hmm. and it's then about reflecting on looking back at your life at your achievements your the things from when you were younger that you were really motivated by that inspired you um and kind of finding trying to discover what that thing is that 
that really fires you up. And I've realized looking back at my career that it's not necessarily been winning medals. It's been my real drive, but it's been proving that people with a disability can compete on a level playing field with those who are fully able-bodied. And I've been pushing my sport on year on year to try and take it to a level where it's on a par or if not quicker than, than the Olympic guys. And we're now at a point where we're doing that. And um, that's been what's kept, kept me going. You know, I've won my on the world and often get asked the question, why do you keep going? And, and that's been it. I've managed to find something that's kind of got a bigger meaning to it. Um, and then we talk about inviting opportunities, which like going to the Veldrome in, in Manchester and suddenly that opportunity arriving. So kind of going out your normal compass, your normal kind of circle and seeing what else is out there. And it's amazing what opportunities might come from just a slightly different field, particularly mm. in these times where pivoting seems to be so important for so many that you invite these different opportunities. You'd be surprised what might come your way as well. Mm. And it's just, yeah, V in my drive phase is having a vision for the future, that kind of legacy you want to leave behind. Mm. And he's having the energy to go out there and actually do it because that's, that's what we're, we're doing this for at the end of the day. So just taking that time to take a step back, get a different perspective on things and, and see what's out there for you and not getting caught up in all the, the kind of small details of your business as you're finding things getting a bit tougher in these situations. But there's a bigger, a bigger thing out there that you're meant to be doing, I'm sure. So um, Definitely. Yeah, just, I, just reflect. As I always say to people, follow your passions, mm. you know, yeah. fascinating conversation. Um, now, I was going to say to you, um, I mean, you've got the, um, you've, you've got your uh, eye deficiency. I'll call it a deficiency because it's a, a, a defect, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But effect, effectively, you're going to become almost blind when you get older. I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So as I say, when I was younger, I really did hide my disability. Mm. Um, and at that point when I was young, the only time I really struggled was in low level lighting. So, you know, in winter, which particularly up in the Northeast of Scotland, where I'm from, mm. you know, it gets dark at incredibly <laughs> early, but the street lights aren't enough to illuminate for me. So in that situation, I'm almost totally blind and it was quite limiting. Um, mm. So, you know, I wouldn't go out in an evening with friends and things and socialize because I didn't want to be struggling um, in front of people because I, I thought that was embarrassing and I wanted to kind of hide that disability. Sure. And as a result, my kind of, my social network got smaller as you get older, you know, as, as you're a teenager, people want to go out and hang out and, and do things. And, you know, I wasn't doing it. You only get asked so many times before people stop asking. So, True. so, you know, my social circle got smaller and smaller and it wasn't really until my early twenties that I started to accept my disability as it became more of a challenge. And as I realized more people became aware that actually it was making things a lot easier that people knew and I was able to do a lot more. Hmm. Um, but it's been a slow process of acceptance and I was still of that mindset that you want to, you want to fit in with the crowd and didn't really realize that being unique and having something different about yourself is actually really empowering. And it wasn't until I met my, my now wife, Laura, who's totally blind. She's been blind since the age of five. Wow. That I kind of got a real kick up the, the backside, to be honest, where, you know, she said to me, you know, we, we met up a few times and um, just kind of kind of hanging out. And she said, oh, do you want to go to a concert? Um, we're both big fans of rock music. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I've never actually been to a concert. 
I, I can't really go because I can't see and it's loud. It's a bit disorientating. And she said, oh, well, I, I'm totally blind and I go all the time. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Um, so I've got no excuses what you're saying. Right. And yeah, just suddenly that realization, she'd come from a family that was very much encouraged to be independent, just to live a normal life. And she went through and her two brothers went, they're both totally blind, went through mainstream education. Her, her eldest brother was, I think the first to, to go through mainstream education. He was blind and her family really fought for that so that they had this independence. And yeah. That was so inspiring to me to see, well, you know, there are no limits, really. I mean, there's a few things I can't do. It's not safe for me to drive a car, for instance, or fly a plane, sure. But in reality, there's so much I can do. And especially as technology develops over the years, it's kind of opened up the world to, to people with visual impairments and other disabilities as well. But I still have to accept that I very much use the eyesight I've got. I still have some sight, it's blurry, but I can still get around in the day quite well. Although I tend to use a white cane more often now. And that was something I was really... Since I started using it, firstly, I realized people tend to get out of my way more, so I don't bump into people the same. And if I do bump into someone and they see I've got a white cane, then, you know, generally they, they realize, like, oh, that, that's why. And they're less likely to, to want to start a fight with me or anything. And actually, it's, uh, yeah, it's far more empowering and, and just makes me a lot more comfortable to go out and about and do things. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a gradual process. And I'm fortunate in that respect that I've got to learn. But it does still scare me the fact that I could lose all of my sight, of course, because I still use what I've got. and um, you know, it's quite handy for, for certain things around the house. But I've got a fantastic guide in my wife now, although I'm sure she'll be infuriated with how useless I am for a while <laughs> when I do become totally blind. But, you know, it's it's sometimes you need that eye-opener. And the Paralympics have been great for that. And, and meeting Laura has been great for that too, that you see people who are struggling far more, but achieving far more as well and in and, and no way letting it get to them. So that, that's been massively helpful and has opened up many doors in my life as well. So I... I'm quite grateful I've got a visual impairment, if I'm honest. I'd love for it to, to stay where it is and not go totally blind, but you know that's up to the, uh, the experts to try and find a solution for me. Absolutely. Fantastic. Really, really good. Um, some, some really fantastic insights, actually, because uh, you know what I love about our conversations is because we do come from similar backgrounds and, and, and things like that. And you know we've kind of created this um, should we say the not just similarities, but like you said, there's such great similarities between high elite sport and and business and running a business, whatever it is. Now, I know that you are um, you're hoping to compete in Tokyo next year, of course. Um, so, and then obviously there's an, a three or a four year gap. We don't know yet, of course. <laughs> um, but in terms of running a business, how does running a business compare to being an athlete? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, yeah, obviously it was devastating for the, the games to be postponed for a year, but obviously lots of people are going through similar issues. So hopefully they go ahead next year. But yeah, it's an interesting one. So the idea of running my own business really came about after the Rio Paralympics in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, I'd gone from London, where, where I won gold, um, to Rio that whole four-year cycle undefeated in international sport. It was an incredible time where... 
myself and my, my tandem partner, we were we were just pushing the sport onto new levels. We were winning everything and the rest of the sport was catching us the whole time, but we were always up there at number one. Mm. So I went to those games as an overwhelming favorite to win gold. Um, you know, and I remember seeing on Channel 4 where they, they covered the games and, you know, there's an interview we'd done months before that suddenly appeared when I was out in Rio and I saw it talking about how, you know, if anyone's going to beat us, they're going to have to, to work bloody hard to do it. Um, you know, I, I telling the nation that essentially that I thought we were going to win gold. And that was quite a, a high pressure moment in my life. And on that day, um, we had an incredible ride, but someone else was better than us. And the bike from the Netherlands came through to, to take the gold medal and we finished with silver. And for me at that point, I mean, a silver medal at a Paralympic should be an incredible achievement, but it was just complete failure as far as I was concerned. Mm. And I felt like I'd let my, well, myself down, my teammates, of course, I'd let them down. And to be honest, I'd let the whole nation down that I told that essentially we were going to win gold and I hadn't. And the weight of that on me was, was immense. And it was something that I didn't, I didn't really get over straight away either. Um, Again, a time. It sounds of, like you you beat yourself up still about it. Oh yeah, it, I'm at a point where I I forgive myself for it, but um, you know, it, it was quite a pivotal moment. Again, it's something that I think a tough moment that's led to great change, though. Mm. And you know, I, I was struggling, and then there was a world championships a few months later, which I um, I lost as well. So I lost my Paralympic title and my world titles in the space of a few months, and I started to wonder if this was me coming towards the end of my sporting career, you know, I was in my, I think I was 32, yeah, 32 at the time. And mm-hmm. that's around that age in sport where people start asking those questions about, you know, when are you thinking about giving it up? And so you, you got those thoughts going through your head and my performance, I wondered if it was slipping, the rest of the world was taking over. And I thought maybe this is kind of getting towards the end of my career. Mm-hmm. And at that point I realized that I'd spent a decade in full-time sport and didn't really have anything to show for it. So I had no other source of income. I had no other way of providing. So Mm. I had a mortgage to pay. And if I was to to lose my funding and support, then there was no way of paying that. So I started to reflect on what I could do post-sport. And that's when, you know, just listening to different books, speaking to different people and doing some research, I started to realize that I had picked up these skills over the years. And perhaps there was something I had to offer the world after all. And realize that initially that you know I had picked up all these different skills um, and that's really where the idea of, of kind of a business coaching company came from and I decided just to, to press on and, and start building this so when my sporting career came to an end I had something to, to fall back on I didn't have this sort of period of trying to figure it out with no income at all and um, yeah it just kind of developed from there and, and weirdly as I was getting involved in the business world for a long time, the belief in sport had been that you had to dedicate everything to your performance in order to be the best in the world. Your whole lifestyle, everything had to be completely focused on your sport and nothing else. Mm-hmm. But having a separate focus, weirdly, my cycling performance just went through the roof. Um, and, you know, I think it was that taking the pressure off at times where I could unload on something else. And I had other goals in mind. I wanted to defend my Commonwealth title and I was working towards that. But it was just incredible that I suddenly, it was picking up, I was picking up. And I got to the uh, the World Champs and the Commonwealth Games in 2008, which were, uh, 2018, sorry. And they were two weeks apart. We had the World Championships. Weirdly, back in Rio, where I'd had that failure just uh, 
well, a year and a half beforehand. And I went to those world champs and didn't know really where I stacked up against the rest of the world because we hadn't really had any major races since those world championships I'd lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, we came out and and took double gold. One got back to be number one in the world. Then um, less than two weeks later, I was over in Australia on the Gold Coast for the Commonwealth Games with Team Scotland. And again, we uh, we won two gold medals and, and broke a world record. And, and not only that, one of the times we, we achieved was quicker than what the able-bodied guys did in, in their event. Wow. Because the great thing about the Commonwealth Games is you, you compete alongside able-bodied and disabled together, which was, was really awesome. So we got to have that direct comparison. And yeah, I just suddenly found that goal I'd been aiming for for years to show how how people with a disability could compete on a level playing field. And just out of nowhere, where I thought that it was the end of my career, it had escalated and I had actually done that. It was this huge couple of weeks of performance. And that's when I realized all this stuff I was putting into place for working with businesses really could be applied to, to me as well. And I realized as well that having more than one focus in your life can be massively beneficial and not not detrimental to your performance as well. So I always think that's something I, I really try to get through to, to people in business as well, that you should be committed to what you do, of course, um, and, and give it your all, but you need some other outlet as well. Um, otherwise, it just becomes so all-encompassing where when it's good, it's great. Uh, and when times hit hard, which now is one of those times for many people, mm. uh, it just is so overwhelming that suddenly you, you almost can't breathe because it's your one main focus and it's going wrong and going away from you. And that's what I was struggling with in Rio. So having that ability to to just go to something else and shift has been massive in my performance. And it's why I'm still competing to this day when I really didn't expect to be, to be honest. It, what's interesting is that you've kind of highlighted the fact that you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Um, and, and it's interesting because I see business owners and entrepreneurs making the same mistakes where, you know, they focus on, you know, one, they, they might have like one service or one product and whatever it is. And then they just, they just go out. Do you know what I mean? Um, totally. and, uh, what you're saying is, well, if you do that, then you're going to perform less than if you have something else, which you can focus on, which is really interesting analogy. Actually, I just want to say that that's kind of cool. Um, I wanted to ask you actually, because I know that, um, as people are going through these challenging times and I know that the thought patterns might be that, you know, they're, they're, they're failing or they're, you know, that they're failures in business or in life or whatever it is. What does failure mean to you, by the way? And um, how can some of our listeners, how can you, how can they um, help overcome sort of failures uh, from some of the lessons that you've learned? Yeah. And, you know, again, I think I'm from a fortunate position here. We're in sport. We do fail often. Uh, we fail a lot. And it doesn't mean that all failures are easy. And you've heard about some of my my big failures for sure, mm. where it's taken time. Uh, and the first thing really to suggest is when you do have a big failure, you're allowed to go through those phases of almost like overcoming grief, to be honest. You have to kind of go through those different stages of blaming others and, and feeling sorry for yourself. And, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of forget what all those key stages are, but it, you're allowed to feel that way. It's um, it's nothing to be ashamed of by any means. But something I think that we're quite good at in sport is we kind of redefine failure. So it's not necessarily a negative term. I often think, even when you say the word, it just has that negative connotation all the time that failure, you know, it's this bad thing. Mm. But in reality, I wouldn't be anywhere near the level I am 
and training if I didn't fail. The whole point is with sport that you're pushing yourself to your limit and you're finding that limit on a regular occurrence. So if I never push myself to my limit, I have to be at that breaking point before I can realize where I currently am, what I need to do to improve, where my strengths lie, where my weaknesses lie. And it's the only way you can learn. Um, It's very hard to learn from just kind of a a half-hearted or or mediocre performance because you never really understand what's going on fully. So we fail in training all the time. I mean, I fail to lift weights in the gym. I fail to meet targets in training. I fail to output powers. And it's just not looking at it from that point of view of it's a bad thing, but it's more a case of looking at it like, okay, so this is where I'm at. What do I need to do now in order to get to the next level? Mm. And embracing it. And it's easier said than done for sure. But I think the best way of doing it for me has always been kind of debriefing after any, certainly after every race, win or lose, we debrief. I often do it after training sessions, after blocks of training, where I'm speaking to a coach or my training partners, and you get that different perspective on it. Because a lot of people, particularly entrepreneurs who are working on their own, um, you might have other people you're, you're talking to, but you're, you're not really going to divulge to those perceived failures to other people because you want to keep them to yourself often. But that ability to talk to other people and get perspective where you're not just um, letting it get the better of you, you're only seeing it from your own perspective. It's such a dangerous thing to do, whereas you get a few different viewpoints from different angles and you realize that that failure is not really a a big issue whatsoever. And it's kind of like you can't see the wood for the trees sort of cliche that you're just too involved, you're too in it sometimes to really see it. So that ability to debrief, talk it through, get that different perspective is so powerful. And those kind of chats I have after a race and, you know, some, again, some of the best lessons we've learned are after winning events where we talk back and athletes are notoriously uh, miserable where, you know, often I've won a race, won a gold medal and been like, ah, yeah, but we didn't quite do this right. You know, could have done better. You're always striving for that perfect, perfect race and you never get there, of course. Definitely. But yeah, just that talking it through reflecting it's so important we all say we reflect but i think very few people actually take the time to do it in reality and i think it's it's been the key to to my constant improvement and, and staying ahead of my rivals all these years so i guess uh failures made you certainly more stronger more than anything else um, definitely from a from a performance of mind perspective right and um uh which is really interesting actually um last question because I know that um, you're a very busy person, but how um, how important has coaching and mentoring been in your journey and in terms of your success? Yeah, I mean, we all know sports people have coaches first and foremost, but it certainly doesn't need to just be my sports coaches that I look at. And interestingly, the the type of coach I've had over the years developed on that. So. These days, my sports coach isn't someone who is an expert in cycling by any means. I've been around long enough and I know my body well enough to know what training I need anyway. So that's kind of technical aspect. I can almost deliver myself, but it's someone who can be a sounding board, again, with that different perspective that I can talk to, um, get viewpoints, and someone who can go away and talk to, to his network and find things out. And that's where all our specialists come into it. And it's it's been so important just to, to keep developing. And I found that the coach I have has had to almost change over the years. So I think back to when I was younger, I needed that technical input. 
Mm. I needed that arm around the shoulder approach almost just to keep reminding me that things were okay. I was doing fine. And then I went through a phase where I guess I got comfortable and I needed a coach. And I had one in particular I can think of who was just tough, like real tough love of <laughs> giving me, you know, almost shouting at me sometimes. I'd be moaning that, oh, I just have too tired. I can't do this. And sometimes you just need that person that just gives you that reality check of, ah, come on, you need to do this. And yeah. that, that was so important as well. And it's just changed over the years, that kind of, just different perspective always has been so so crucial Love it. and as I've kind of entered into to business as well I mean I've I didn't know anything about business to be honest when I started and you know just the simple things I, I didn't know what I was doing but I've gradually managed to build up my network there as well where I can speak to people who they're talking about and realize again that often a lot of people don't know what they're doing either and it's you know I'm not the only one by any means and just having that that expert knowledge has been good again I've almost gone back to the way I was when I started sport where I needed that technical input and now it's kind of going through that cycle again of just having someone to to chat to and bounce ideas off of is so important so yeah doing it on your own it's just you get so far and then you just hit that wall I think so you, you just need someone there and it's um something I, I massively encourage it within any business any industry whatever walk of life you are whether it's sport or not you know i think you need someone else around you um and yeah it, it's been pivotal for me for sure cool awesome very cool so um i know that you're a best-selling author by the way um your book's called earn your stripes let's take a look at it yeah i do, do always keep a, a copy handy earn your stripes, which earn i'm your very stripes. proud of very cool. Um, so if you guys are interested in learning a little bit more about what Neil is teaching, uh, he's got a best-selling book on, I believe it's on Amazon and places like that, right? Earn Your Stripes. Yeah, you can get that on Amazon. It's um, Yeah, it's got loads of these stories and, and many, many more from a sporting career. So, you know, it's not one of these uh, in-your-face technical books. It's quite a good read. And um, yeah, I, I think you'll learn a few things as well, for sure. So yeah, I'd love, love for more people to read. I just want to spread my message really and get more people achieving. Fantastic. Well, listen, I have thoroughly enjoyed my conversations with, uh, you know, purely, I just love listening here about different people's stories and different analogies. I love all that kind of stuff. It's fantastic. So just want to say thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. And guys, if you want to connect with Neil, by the way, you can connect with him on social media. I believe you're on Twitter, right? And uh, Insta. Yeah, at Neil Fackey and sure, any questions or anything, I'm, I'm more than happy to answer. And uh, yeah, you can find me just at Neil Fackey, N-E-I-L-F-A-C-H-I-E. Perfect. And uh, and guys, just remember to just say that you've been listening to the podcast and you've listened to Neil and, and so he knows where you come from and things like that because I'm sure that he's extremely busy, especially with all this training that he's going to be going for in Tokyo 2021, hopefully. So um, guys, hope you've been enjoyed today's uh, episode I certainly have. Please, please, please make sure that you listen into the next episode of the Game Changers Experience. And I look forward to seeing you there. Take care of yourself and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, you guys, I just want to say thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Game Changers Experience. I hope that you got some amazing value, some great insights and golden nuggets that you can implement into your business straight away. I would really, really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star review on the button below. Have a fantastic day, and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.